afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Michael Burke went from being a successful lawyer, a loving father and husband, and respected member of the community, to a closet alcoholic and gambling addict to the tune of $1,600,000 of one of his client's trust account funds. And uh, I'm glad to see he is been redeemed since that time and has written Never Enough, one lawyer's true story of how he gambled his career away. Michael, I'm glad you were able to get down here and to spend some time with us. This is a serious matter, gambling. Oh, oh yes. It, it sure is hell. Thank you for having me. Talk to me about this. I, this is, uh, I, I, I want to kind of get behind your eyes on this. How does it begin? Did the alcohol go first or the gambling? Uh, the alcohol definitely went first. Uh, I've been in recovery uh, for 37 years. I haven't had a drink. Wow. Uh, Congratulations. And at one of the sessions, I went through Brighton Hospital. And yes. this is while I was a practicing attorney. Uh, it's a 30-day inpatient program. And, and I went through that program, and I got my life all turned around. Uh, but then I started playing with gambling. Oh, okay. And over the next 15 years, it's like any other addiction. It just got worse and worse and worse until there came a point in time when I got in some trouble, financial trouble, because of my gambling. And I did what no lawyer in the world should do, and every lawyer in the world knows he shouldn't do it. Uh, I took money out of a trust account. Um, Now, eventually, it affected 16 of my clients. Mm. Uh, Wow. So it was a... Just an, an unbelievable thing. But when I took the money the first time, yeah. I convinced myself I was not stealing money from my clients. I was simply going to borrow some money yeah. until I could put it back in the account. Right, right. I believe that with my whole heart yeah. and soul. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's go back uh, to your decision to become a lawyer and what kind of life. It sounded like, it, you know, from what I can read, it sounded like you had a, a rewarding and rich life. Uh, you had a sense of con- family continuity. Uh, we were just talking off the air about uh, your family's long legal history and yeah. background. And So t- tell me um, where you went to school, what your spiritual background was like. Give me some of those fundamentals. Okay. I'm one of 10 children, born in Ann Arbor, raised in Howell, Michigan. Uh, back then, uh, we were known in town as that good Irish Catholic family. <laughs> okay, good. Of course. Uh, my grandfather uh, had a practice in Ann Arbor, the Burke Law Firm. To this day, the Burke Law Firm is the oldest existing law firm in all of Washtenaw County. Wow. <laughs> uh, he actually was a judge at the Nuremberg War Trials. He was appointed after the Second World War. He tried Nazi war criminals. Um, my father was a lawyer, uh, ended up leaving the practice of law. He was appointed by the governor uh, to head the Liquor Control Commission for the state. And that's when we moved to Howell okay. because it was a little more convenient for him to go back and forth from Lansing and Detroit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife, uh, her father— uh, is an attorney. 
uh, I'm sorry, was an attorney, practiced law for 50 years in Howell. Uh, so there came a point in time uh, in the early 70s when they talked about opening up this new law school up in Lansing mm-hmm. called Cooley Law yeah. School. Yeah. And uh, Jane and I talked it over, and we decided I'd be the one to carry on the family tradition. And I went to Cooley Law School, very first class. Uh, so I have this real rich heritage. I have this understanding of the law. I love lawyers. Yeah. Lawyers are, are, are the greatest people in the world. Uh, my book that you were mentioning, the two things I want to tell you about it, number one, it's published by the American Bar Association. Hmm. And there's a reason for that. They, they want to help other lawyers not get into Same. what I got what happened into. happened with you, yeah. And uh, the other wonderful thing about the book, the proceeds, all the proceeds from Never Enough go to my victims. I don't see a cent of it, okay, and and never will. So this is a way of making restitution. That's correct. Yeah, uh, that's which is correct. a big part of recovery. Oh, oh my yeah. heaven's sakes! It it absolutely is. Uh, it's just it is the best part. But number two, the book is out there for people to read because I remember when I went through this and uh, the last day that I gambled, the day that I told my family was March 30th, 2001. It happens to be 14 years ago today. <laughs> I, was just, I was just writing that down. And, okay. and when I told my family this, they didn't know I gambled, which is not unusual. It, it's very common because it's an easy addiction to hide. You know, when I was drinking, I might have slurred speech, right. uh, smell of alcohol, yeah. unsteady gait, uh, these... Problems that people would notice. The first time you're going to notice a compulsive gambler, somebody who's crossed that line into compulsive gambling, is when there's a divorce, when there's a bankruptcy, uh, when criminal charges are filed, Mm. when a suicide is attempted. Uh, Gambler's uh, 20% of compulsive gamblers actually attempt suicide. It's the highest suicide rate of any addiction. Wow. Wow. It's, it's, it's just terrible. But when, we, when this happened back in 2001 on March 30th, there was nothing out there. There were no books. There was nothing else to speak of mm-hmm. uh, for the families to look at. Uh, and I spent three years in prison because of what I did. And when I came home, a friend of mine talked me into doing the book. But And when I was doing it and working on it, my two daughters came to me and they said, Dad, we'd like to add a chapter to the book so that we can tell families going through this what it's like and that there is hope of coming out on the other side. And uh, there, there are starting to be a few more books. But the thing to understand about compulsive gambling it really is a relatively new phenomenon because we never had the proliferation of gambling yeah. that we have today. Now, let's, let's, in fact, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, let me ask first, though. I want to clarify. I want to make sure. You had already were, you were in recovery for alcohol before you began. Absolutely. Okay. Doing... Um, uh, you were at Brighton Hospital. I think they use twelve-step programs up there, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, what? Nothing tipped you off 
from your recovery experience with alcohol. Nothing tipped you off that you might be crossing a new line. Al, let me tell you what's really interesting about addiction. In the beginning, addiction works. It does all the magic. It does all the mystical. It does all the wonderful stuff. I went 10, 12 years of gambling where it was just great. It was just fun. And then there comes a point in time, though, where you cross that line into addictive behavior. Okay. And once you do that with gambling, you're done. Okay. Okay. You, you really are finished. The important thing, though, and you and you brought this up, and it, it's so true. I go around the country speaking today. I've spoken in 35 states. I've spoken to all kinds of groups, a lot of law groups. and uh, But one of the things that bothers me the most is we know today where our gamblers are coming from. They're coming from the substance abuse recovery field. The majority of people I talk to, and I've talked to thousands of people in the last 10 years across the United States, the majority of them are in recovery from alcoholism. And I'll tell you what, the alcoholic community is not real receptive uh, to hearing my talk. And let me let me give you a little, exagger- a little example of how crazy this can Yeah, please do. In Ann Arbor, they have an Alano Club, wonderful club. Yeah, I know where it is. And as a yeah. matter of fact, they they have uh, GA meetings here. Okay. The Washtenaw County Alano Club sponsors a poker room. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> fascinating. It, it's, yeah. But I go around the country telling alcoholics not to gamble and telling compulsive gamblers not to drink. And they both think I'm nuts. Yeah. yeah. You know, if they're in it. And and I just, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to just say, well, I, I never knew. I yeah. never understood. I want to, before I die, before I'm taken off this planet, talk to as many people in recovery as I can. And that's why I'm so happy for this opportunity to let, to tell them you stay the hell away from gambling. Now, for the non-alcoholic, the person not in recovery, go ahead and gamble. You know, most yeah. of you are going to gamble once or twice a year. You're not hurting anybody. Uh, there's so, nothing wrong. There's with no that. intrinsic evil no, involved. No, it's, it's, it's no. a game. It's a game. It's a game. Yeah. But yeah. for those of us who unfortunately were born with a gene, an addiction gene in our bodies, and I believe that's really true, okay. we can't do it. It's... I'll tell you, the devastation from gambling, my own, and what I've seen from hundreds of other people, it's not worth it. Hmm. You said earlier that uh, gambling is becoming increasingly difficult because of the proliferation of opportunities. This is similar to pornography right now. Absolutely. And uh, when you – so I'm assuming the proliferation of gambling opportunities – related to the internet but are there other ways that gambling has become more acceptable oh heavens yes uh one of the the biggest in michigan is this charity charity gaming uh they call it that uh they took the game that you and i played when we were kids the vegas night from the catholic yeah, church yeah. and they've turned it into a real mini casino and i've worked with a lot of people coming out of those casinos yeah it's, it's it's amazing because 
this again is presented as kind of an innocent indulgence at first, but for those who have this proclivity to uh, addictive behavior, uh, it really is a landmine. Oh, it it it, it will take everything uh, from the person in recovery and absolutely destroy them, destroy their families. I want to come back and ask you uh, on the other side of the break, is how, how can a person know that they are vulnerable to this kind of addiction? So uh, stay with me. We'll come back on the other side of the break. My guest is Michael J. Burke. He's the author of Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. And again, uh, as Michael pointed out, this is uh, being published by the American Bar Association because of the, the issues here are of such significance to the profession. I'm Al Cresta. we got more coming up. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta with Michael J. Burke. Uh, he's the author of Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. You're also, we were talking off air, you're president of or vice president of what the, organization? The Michigan Association of Problem Gambling. Yeah. Uh, so we have a website. It's a pretty nice website, too. But if you go on our website, it's got my contact information. I will talk to anybody. Okay. About a gambling problem. What I want to come back and ask the question of how does uh, somebody uh, learn that they're vulnerable. But before I get there, let's talk about your drinking first. When did you realize you had a problem? Uh, in college. That's, that's when it really started to show up. Uh, and you were aware of it as a problem in college? Uh, I, oh, I, I, I knew that I drank. Too, too much. much. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, you right, know, right. I didn't get drunk driving, so I, you know, I never missed a day of work, did anything like that. But when I went to law school, the first year of law school, I quit drinking. You know how I did it? I used a little bit of willpower, put the cap in the bottle, put it down, because I knew if I drank, I probably wouldn't make it through the first year. You wouldn't get That's it. That's yeah. that inner awareness that I had. Well, I got through the first year, and of course, for an alcoholic, what that means is you're strong. I could go back and drink again. <laughs> That's right. It and, shows that you're not an addict. Right? And I did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, it was about three years into my practice uh, that everything blew up. Thank God. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going into Brighton Hospital. It's, it's funny. I I've been a patient at Brighton Hospital. I was on the board of directors when I was a lawyer for Brighton Hospital. And then I ended up lecturing there for six years. <laughs> um, so you, so three years into your legal practice, you realized alcohol was a problem, and you went and got help. Was there any um, uh, any um, co- explosive experience that drove you there, or was it just you finally realized this is not going to work? I had a real bad experience. I had decided I was going to leave my wife and my practice. Now you got to understand, I love the practice of law more than any attorney you're ever going to meet in your lifetime. Okay. But because of my drinking, I was depressed, I was despondent. Yep. I just wanted to get away, and so I went out to Las Vegas. Well, I end up lasting out there about a day and a half, and I get in trouble and call my wife, Jane, and she sends me out a ticket, and that was the experience. Because when I got home, uh, this very, very loving wife, uh, that I have uh, presented me with an ultimatum. 
uh, get some help or our marriage okay. of 10 years was over. Okay. And uh, it was one of the nicest things she ever did for me in my so life. So how did you hear that when she said that? Did you see oh, that I as love it. or did oh, you see that as threat? How did that work? Total love. Okay. Total. So she, she was able to communicate that. She's always understood addiction. Yeah. Uh, she's a really bright person. Uh, you know, she wanted to keep our family together. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, she knew I needed help. Okay. Now, so you do fine with uh, alcohol. You come out, though, uh, gambling is there. When do you realize you've got a problem with gambling? You're stealing. You don't think you're stealing. You think you're borrowing from your client. The trust fund. The day I'd had an incident, I had taken money from a client. And I had to get the money back to the client. Okay. Or I was going to be exposed. Okay. This was money I'd used to gamble, but I didn't steal it. But the client wanted the money back. Gotcha. And I was put in the corner where if I didn't come up with the money, it was going to be made known uh, to the paper in Livingston County. Yeah. And there would be a lawsuit filed and a grievance filed with the, the bar. All appropriate. Sure. But okay. I couldn't have that happen. Nobody knew I gambled. Okay. And uh, that's when I went into the account for the first time. And when I did it. So you went into another trust fund then? Into a, I went into a client's, uh, my client's trust account. Okay. Uh, and in that account, I have funds from 15 to 20 clients at all times. Gotcha. Okay. And I, I knew, I knew I shouldn't do it. No question about it. But I couldn't allow myself to be exposed. To be exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a great line. It's that the chains of compulsive gambling are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. That's that's a powerful line. You're right. That's when I knew I was done. Yeah. I and you know what? I knew that day that I was going to go to prison. And it was probably a year and a half before it all ended. But I knew that was the end. I knew it. Did it end because you just kept going back to that same well and you got deeper and deeper and deeper into it? Yep. Until you finally get to the point uh, where it's just all over. It's done. It's gone. The damage is so deep. Uh, The lying to my my wife, my children. You see, I only gambled at Windsor Casino. Okay. I never get. I've never been inside a Detroit casino okay, to gamble. So you went, went over to Canada, of course. Okay. You know because I uh, I'm sneaky. Yeah, you know, <laughs> okay. and uh, nobody's going to see me over there, and nobody's going to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 that's what I did. I now you were raised Catholic. Did yep. you? How was? Uh, what happened to your sense of spirituality through all this? Absolutely uh, destroyed. Uh, what's funny though is more so with the drinking. I remember the first AA meeting I went to Brighton Hospital. They wanted to stand up and say the Lord's Prayer afterwards. Mm-hmm. I refused to you do did. it. No one's going to tell me hmm. what I have to do. Well, what was really crazy about this, all of a sudden I had this just really I hated God. Yeah. Well, today it's I understand why. I was doing things when I was drinking that if I admitted I believed in God, I was in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in big trouble. Uh, it, I, I didn't have that problem uh, with the, uh, the gambling. The gambling. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll tell you, the, the worst day of my life 
March 30th, 2001. I came home. I turned myself into the state bar. I'd gone over to the Michigan Attorney General's office, told them what I'd been doing. I had to come home and tell my family. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew. I told my wife first. Uh, oh. She was. It looked like she was going to pass out. But then all of a sudden, now you could see it. It was so clear. It was on her face. She knew that things were going to get very bad, very fast. All she cared about from that point in time was taking care of Amy and Katie, our two daughters. Then Amy was a senior at Michigan, and Katie was a junior at Howell High School. Hmm. Now, Katie, the little girl who just worshipped me, Mm-hmm. Worship me. I was her idol. And for good reason. Uh, she came home from school. She'd been out with friends shopping for her dress for the junior prom. I had to sit her down and tell her this story. And as I did, wow. she sat there. Her little body just shook and trembled. Tears ran down her face. She never said one single word until I stopped. And when I was done with the story, she turned to her mother and she said, are you going to allow this man to stay in this house? Wow. That, that, that's that's some, where addiction takes you. That's got a knife through your heart oh, there, huh? I just want to, you know, I want I wanted to be wow. dead. Now, when you talk about spirituality, I wake up every morning and the first thing I say when I wake up is, dear God. Thank you for not letting me pull the trigger. Yeah. I, I'd been suicidal. I was going to ask you, did you oh. get that, that that low, huh? Oh, it, and you know it's awful. During alcohol or during gambling? During gambling, not during alcohol. Interesting. Okay. But what, what the, the worst part about it is, when I had the gun up to my head, I was sitting down at my office, it was the single greatest feeling I ever had in my life. Whoa. You gotta Ever. take me there. Gotta take me there because that's a it little was, counter to what I would have thought. Yeah. So you're you're feeling low enough oh, I, my, and unworthless enough to yeah. want to take your own life, but when you lift the gun to your head, you get what a rush? Not oh, not a rush at all. I knew it was going to be over. I knew it was going to be done. The end. I knew it was going to be the end. I got you. So the problems were all gone. Yeah. Well, and then of course. Then, Isn't that course, a, what a lie, huh? Oh, what a lie. And, and <laughs> what then a lie. I, I turn around in my chair. I'm at my desk in the office, and there's a picture of my wife and two daughters. And then it hit me. Nobody knew I gambled. What would happen? They find me dead, and then two or three weeks later, these clients start coming in looking for their money. It would have been like a Chinese water torture. They never would have forgiven me. Yeah, yeah. That's right, because you 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 had exited. Yeah, you had left it with them. If it hadn't, it, it was you made the so, mess and you so didn't sick. clean it up. Yep, you're so sick when you're in that state. Yeah, wow. Uh, let's go back to the question about uh, vulnerabilities. Who? How do you know that you're vulnerable to addiction? And uh, in this case, it was drinking first, and you've made a strong point, which I hadn't considered before, and that is that many people who become gamblers uh, had previous problems with substances. How do you know you're vulnerable to that kind of addiction? What I tell people across the United States is if you come from a substance abuse or an addiction background, either yourself or somebody in your family mm-hmm. heritage, yeah, 
you are predisposed to having this addiction gene in your body. Why in heaven's name would you ever take a chance? I have never done marijuana. I've never done cocaine. Mm -hmm. I've never done heroin. You know, um, you talked about pornography. I, I have friends who will send me a thing on the internet every mm -hmm. once and then with X's on it. Mm -hmm. I hit the delete button. Yeah. I've never had a, pro a problem with pornography mm -hmm. in my life. Yeah. But why would I take that chance? Right, right. I'm predisposed. I, yeah, right. you know, and you know what? I might be able, I'm such a great liar, I might be able to get away with it <laughs> for five or ten years. Right. But for those of us who are predisposed to it, eventually it's going to ruin us mm -hmm. and, and, and really hurt our families. Is there, is there anything a person can see in how they process experience, the way they handle relationships, the way that they use excessive uh, alcohol or spend money excessively? Is there anything that shows up as a, as a marker for this person or me uh, uh, are vulnerable to becoming an alcoholic or a gambler. One, one of the things that's really interesting about that is there's a lot of proof in your income taxes. Oh, You know, okay. if you're a person gambling and you're like a slot player, yeah. you're going to win a lot of jackpots and you're going to see those. I, they're coming to your income taxes. They're going to show up there. If your spouse is getting these in the mail and you see it, that's a pretty good sign. If you're short money and, and the spouse can't explain it, he's got that history of a background, uh, look at him. The one thing I want to do, I want to speak to recovery groups around the United States. Yeah. That is, that's how I want to end my life. But even more than that, I want to speak to Al-Anon groups. Yeah. I want to warn these women and these men. Of what could be coming. If your spouse is in recovery and you see them gambling and they're telling you, I'm winning, they're lying to you. The first time anybody you know looks at you and says, you know what, the majority of the time I gamble, I win, they got a problem. That's a sign. Because okay. you don't. All right. Everybody knows that. So that's a way of minimizing things. It's a way of elevating your own performance in lying. Basically, it's just yep. a lie. Yep. Okay. So that's that would be a signal that there are problems there. Interesting. Income tax is interesting, too. So... Uh, Hold it there. I want to come back and continue conversation with Michael Burke. He's the author of Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. And we'll uh, pick up on, again, some of the other issues related to recovery, spirituality, and also helping uh, people in recovery from alcohol to avoid gambling. 